0: Today, I welcome Dr. Michael Gray, Headmaster at Hereford Cathedral School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss real-world readiness as a sixth form diploma, the importance of digital literacy, changing careers advice into futures advice, and how to live into a school's 10-year strategic vision. I want to talk about Hereford Cathedral School, where you are the head. You currently run a diploma for Sick form as Centred in Real World Readiness. What is it and how did you go about this?
1: The diploma came about really because we were looking at the curriculum and looking at the needs that employers have in terms of graduates and the kind of people that they're after. While we're big champions of the kind of the A-level curriculum, at the same time, that's not enough in itself to prepare people for life beyond school. That was really the kind of philosophical underpinnings. And so alongside the three or four A-levels that pupils do here, we set up a diploma, which is accredited by the University of Buckingham, and which consists of different components. Fundamentally, it's about really trying to equip the pupils for life. There's kind of four key parts to it. One of the main parts is the electives program. And that includes a series of short non-examined courses on topics such as how to have difficult conversations and that pupils are filmed, kind of role-playing different scenarios, and, and then looking back and reviewing those things like how to cook on a budget, financial literacy, the art of public speaking, interview skills, a really wide-ranging set of things. And then they also have to do project work that might include things like learning a new language, might mean becoming a referee, running a major event. And then there's aspects around cultural and personal growth. And then the fourth component is community and experience, whereby pupils have to experience the world of work or the world of volunteering and engage with their wider community in an outward-facing way.
0: How did you come up with the four areas and obviously all the different kind of skills or disciplines that each of the students may be able to pick from?
1: Yeah, so we drew from a wide range of different considerations, one of which, for example, is the International Baccalaureate and the more holistic approach that that qualification involves. And then... We looked at different models and different ways that other countries run their educational systems and also looked at how individual schools have different programs that kind of enrich or supplement their curriculum. We basically tried to take the best practice from a wide cross-section of institutions and countries and and educational qualifications of programs and distill that into a system and diploma that worked for our own particular context here in Hereford. How has it been received? been really well received. So obviously there's lots of different stakeholders. There's the staff and they've really enjoyed running those classes. And we've got different people obviously playing to their particular strengths. So our head of English, for example, runs our cooking program and he does a fantastic job with that. Other stakeholders, of course, are the pupils, arguably the most important. It's been really great getting their feedback and they found it really valuable. Obviously there's some classes that really resonate with them more than others. So we've been trying to get their feedback in real time so we can refine the programs and keep improving them and making them as good as possible. What's been really lovely to hear is them talking about how they've been able to then go and apply that even straight away. So a lot of the time, the benefit that they'll yield from it might not be instant. It might be in the years to come, but it's been really heartening to hear the way that they've been able to benefit from it, even in the short term as well. Then the parents have really liked it too. It's something that they all felt was missing in their own education. A lot of parents, semi joking, at least semi serious, have said, I wish we could join those elective courses and elective programs because that sounds really great and the kind of things that they didn't have. It's landed really well and it's been really good. And it's obviously a, a program that we're constantly trying to refine to make it as strong as possible.
0: Yeah. And you talked about parents buying into it and, you know, we'll reflect on the education we had. That to send my second elders off to university and it is those real world skills that he needs, right? We're packing him up. Can he iron a shirt? Can he do some things? Can he cook? There's a lot of basic life skills that they don't really get because of education. So it's great that you can pack them in. In terms of obviously keeping as real world ready as possible, the world changing enormously fast for this generation. How do you make sure that the subjects or topics, the areas that you
1: include in this diploma are still relevant for next year? I think the main way we do that is not necessarily by us thinking about what we think are relevant. The best things to do is to ask other people, especially employers and leading people within industry and within society to get their perspectives as well. So regularly, I'm speaking with key employers and saying, what are the skills, the aptitudes, the dispositions, the qualities that you want from young people? And if you could kind of design the model CV, as it were, not just in terms of qualifications, but in terms of the skill set and those aptitudes, what would it be? And it's really interesting, for example, the way they talk about how young people might be good at social media or familiar with social media, but they don't always understand how that can be pivoted and applied in a work context, how to use open AI in a way that is useful in an employment context, trying to help them to understand how the, the skills that they have can be harnessed and pivoted. That's been something that's been really helpful. So to answer your question, ultimately, it's to get as many inputs into that as possible. So we're not just dealing in a Hereford bubble or even in a kind of a UK bubble, but looking at what the global demands are in the marketplace.
0: And is this something that you hope to sort of package up and offer as a, an exemplar way that other schools could possibly implement? Is it easy to kind of pack and
1: play? Yeah, I'd say it is easy to pack and play insofar as as long as you've got the people who can deliver those programs, but certainly as a model, I think it would translate very well into almost any context. Certainly what we've had is we've had quite a few colleagues in other schools picking up the phone and saying, I've heard about this, I've seen this on social media, and asking more about it and looking at how they can apply it within their own school. So absolutely, that's certainly something we're very open to doing. And if there were were other schools or, or listeners on this podcast, who are interested in hearing more about it, we're very open to sharing the work that we've done and how it can be applied within their own contexts.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Digital literacy is increasingly important in today's world. How do you build IT skills into the classroom so it doesn't become, I'm going to say, led too much by IT, but IT being kind of a skill that you need to understand?
1: Absolutely. I think the key is about having it integrated into the way that we operate There's obviously a place for studying IT for its own sake. A lot of the time, the technology needs to be a means rather than the end in itself. The way that we've done it here in Hereford Cathedral School last September, so September 2022, every pupil in the school now brings their own device into the classroom, and that has to be able to have digital inking. So we don't have any exercise books in the school. Everything is done through OneNote. And that's great in the sense of teachers can give feedback in real time if a pupil is away because they're they're at a sports fixture for argument's sake. The notes can already be there. It provides the opportunity for collaboration, for harnessing all of the online resources. That's been a really kind of key part of that. And then another way in which we've integrated it in is by looking at some of the newer technologies, things like how VR can impact upon the curriculum if one's studying rivers, for example, put the VR headset on and travel down the Zambezi, if one's doing interview practice for Oxbridge or a job interview context, there's various VR software which enables the pupils to have all of those practices. And then we're also looking at how that can be synced with open AI so that you can then have VR, open AI generative experience of doing interview practice and, and having those conversations and so forth. So you can essentially do as much unlimited practice as one might want
0: technology into the classroom like you have, and like a lot of schools do, is absolutely critical. How do you make sure that the teachers and the staff that you have available are at the required level? Because often, students know more than the teachers when it comes to technology. So how do you bridge that gap?
1: I think fundamentally, it's about the culture that we have in the organisation and a culture of constant learning. Certainly I think all of us in our organisation were keen to continually grow and to continually learn. There's obviously things that staff can learn from the pupils and things that pupils can learn from the staff, and it's the culture that we have. What's been really wonderful is the way that the staff have got on board with this and how they've been keen to upskill. So inevitably, within, within any common room, there's a gradation of technological aptitude and ability. Clearly, there's a, a minimum level that everybody needs to be at. Beyond that, there's a wider range of different levels of aptitude and specialism. But certainly, one of the ways we've done that is through the introduction of digital champions. We had six or seven people who were really kind of pioneering the technology and they were the go-to person if somebody just wanted a little bit of a help with a shortcut or how does this work or a bit stuck, creating a culture where it's perfectly okay to not know how to do something, just being willing to ask. And the staff have really stepped up. They've been really impressive and they had their devices a term ahead of the pupils did and they had a good few months to really be able to upskill themselves and to harness all the training that we put on in order for them to be able to really deliver that.
0: How do you balance digital with analog learning? Because you can't expect all teachers to bring technology in the same level, as you said, there's different kind of variants of capability. How do you balance digital with analog?
1: We're a great believer in having autonomy by kind of department and by teacher. It's not one way of teaching a maths lesson or one way of delivering a good lesson. Clearly some teachers will want to use the devices in different ways and to a different level. Clearly, it's important that people don't spend all their time looking at a screen. And that's a challenge that a lot of young people have, especially with mobile devices as well. There's a lot of subjects where there'd be more of a practical component, things like let's take DT or drama or sport or music. And of course, technology can play a role in those subjects, but there's perhaps uh, less screen time there than might be in other subjects. It's also the case that it'd be very common to go into a classroom and everybody's laptops are closed that people are having a discussion about something or they're analysing a book in English literature or whatever it might be. It's certainly the case that there's that hybridity within the pedagogy, that there's some time on the screen. It's not screens for its own sake. It's when the technology is appropriate and relevant, we harness it. When it's not appropriate or relevant, we don't use it.
0: What's your best example you've seen of IT in a classroom?
1: Wow, what a question. Probably looking at how people have been able to collaborate with people overseas. So, for example, in our junior school, there's been a a study of the African continent, and we have a partnership with a school in Kigali and Rwanda. In order to develop their understanding of the topic, we're able to dial those pupils in and ask them some questions directly. While in a sense, that's not necessarily the kind of the vanguard of technological innovation, it's probably the most impactful in terms of those opportunities because of the cultural value and the social value and, and the wider benefit they were able to pull from that experience.
0: Have you had to upgrade all your IT? I'm going to call it the hidden stuff, right? You know, IT networks, Wi-Fi infrastructure, all the hardware that costs a lot of money that no one sees. But if you can't access anything, it's the
1: first one that everyone blames. Absolutely right. So that was a big project. I came in in September 2021, And we basically kind of launched what we dubbed our digital strategy pretty much on day one, said that we were going to introduce it from September 2022. So we basically had 12 months to do everything. We have a lot of very old buildings spread out around the cathedral close with very thick walls and quite difficult to wire, a lot of listed buildings. There was some patchy Wi-Fi in places, I think it's probably fair to say. We did a lot of mapping of the whole site. We then had to basically kind of Wi-Fi it all. And network it all and so forth. We had to work on all our cybersecurity and make sure that, that was as robust as possible. And so there's been a lot of work done behind the scenes. That's been a really big project. And it's not, doesn't it, maybe not as glamorous as some of the kind of the software because people don't see it. But as you say, if the Wi Fi hadn't worked well and the bandwidth hadn't been expanded, then that's the first thing that people say. So it was a little bit nerve wracking on the first day of the autumn term last year when we went live but it went really well and i think the feedback from parents has been tremendous we've been very most pleasantly surprised by just how well all the infrastructure's held up
0: that's fantastic it's one of those hidden things that you just rely on don't think enough credit gets given to the ones who put in the the hidden stuff because rather than the stuff that sits in a classroom or the things that you hold and the things that you see i hope you're enjoying the inspiring schools podcast we're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I want to talk about, again, another part of your futures vision is that you recently changed the head of careers to be the head of futures. Sounds like a great catchy title. Why did you make this change?
1: The reason I made this change is really because I think we probably all remember our careers departments when we were at school, and perhaps they were a little bit stuffy. We were told this is the job you need to do or that's the job you need to do. The focus was very much on the career path or the job, whereas the futures department that we've adopted is much more holistic and much more all-rounded and is about the person that they become, not just the function that they hold to in an employment context, and that's really the biggest qualitative shift it's about making sure that our young people are prepared, not just in terms of having the right CV, the right qualifications, the right work experience, but that broader investment in themselves. And we're through school from age three to 18. What futures looks like in year one or year two is obviously very different to what it might look like in the sick form, and clearly about helping them also to be equipped for jobs that haven't yet been invented. And I know that's a little bit of a cliche. If we went back you know, 15, 20 years, the idea of being a collaborative robotics engineer or gene sequencer might be something that would be less common than it is today. There's a danger in pushing people towards very specific careers when actually a lot of them may go on to do roles which they never necessarily envisaged or which don't currently exist. So it's very much about preparing the person rather than just channeling them or pigeonholing them into a specific job title.
0: How do you kind of identify? Maybe this is what your head of futures does, is identify all of these jobs that we don't really know that exist, but they do exist. As you, you know, you mentioned a couple there. We've, you know, we've heard about virtual, a sort of habitat designer, there's remote drone controllers, there's endless things that we can go and list. How do you make sure that you have an up-to-date, I suppose, list of futures that your students can go into?
1: I think one of the key ways of doing this is to try to expose the pupils to the widest possible set of careers. So for example, every term. We run what we call academic super Saturday. It's a day which looks at a particular interdisciplinary theme. And we had one on law. We ran a, a mock trial. We had a couple of judges come in and we had a panel of about eight lawyers in as well. They're all in different types of law. So everyone assumes that law means you know, putting a wig on and going to court, as it were, understanding that actually you could go and become a lawyer in patenting or in very niche specific areas. And suddenly, you could see the pupils were thinking, hang on a minute, I thought law was just this narrow field. And actually, I could go and become a corporate lawyer for a Silicon Valley firm. And that's a totally different type of law to maybe the one that they'd envisage. The more we can expose them to the widest range is really important. And one could kind of download a a list, as it were, and pin that up on the wall or have it on a SharePoint or whatever. But, But I think trying to help the pupils understand what it looks like, in practice and meet people who do those roles is one of the best and most impactful ways of helping them with that.
0: Yeah. And I do think there's still a gap to be plugged. And I do think there's an opportunity for any kind of disruptive startups to bridge that gap. You know, how do you connect your students with these jobs that you and I don't even know exist? I mean, you mentioned law and lawyers that, you know, that's one of the most stable professions out there. Whilst we can slice it down, you can be a patent lawyer, copyright lawyer, you can go work for an A-list superstar or a band. Ultimately, it's all the other bits. You know, What could you go into that I think is important? But it's great that you expose it. I I love the title. I think that title should be there. I'm really tired of career services because they just don't seem to be connected with futures. It's just the same old, come in here, fill this in, have a look through these, and then maybe you're going to go through this very narrow field and you just go off to university. But anyway, it's great that you're making progress. How do you manage this discussion with your students about futures? I mean, do they like the new term?
1: Yeah, I think they do. And I think they like the fact that we're focusing on them as people, maybe rather than focusing on a particular career path. One of the things that we try to look at is we obviously look at what their strengths and weaknesses are. It's a broad principle of truth that to maximize our odds of success, we need to choose the right field of competition, helping the people to play to their strengths and play to the things that they enjoy. And one of the programs that we use as well is something called Compass for Life which is an amazing program that's been designed and built by a man called Floyd Woodrow, who's had a a really remarkable career in special forces and, and then in a number of other areas. That's very much about setting pupils with their North Star. What's your great and ambitious goal? And then think about the cardinals of the compass. Then what's the ethos that you need? What's the values you need to achieve that? What strategy do you need? How do you break that down into a specific set of goals? And then the West Cardinal is around the warrior, the physical abilities you might need in order to be have a healthy body and what you need to do in terms of your fitness, in terms of your mental resilience and, and so forth, looking at people holistically. So that's been another way into those conversations around futures and something that we're trying to integrate throughout the school and use that language.
0: Yeah, and no, I love it. I love Compass for Life. I'm, I'm big on anchors, North Stars and all of those things. And actually something that resonates more with me is all around purpose. And one of my previous guests does a lot around that, goes into schools and is supporting them with actually, how do you find a purpose? How do you get your students to think about what's purposeful? You know, not necessarily about which job do I need to do that's going to get me the most money to get me the shiniest cars and the biggest houses, but what could I do that I really like that's
1: purposeful? Have you come across anything like that? Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek and his book, Find Your Why, which is really powerful. And I think at the heart of what we are as an organization is our values, and that underpins everything that we do, which are kindness, courage, and integrity. One of the things that we aspire for our pupils is that they're purposeful and that they're fulfilled. And we talk quite a lot about servant leadership and so forth. If the pupils are purposeful and if they're fulfilled, then happiness will follow. I think if happiness is the goal, it's often not achieved. But I think actually... Happiness is often a byproduct of being able to live out your mission, living out your values, finding your purpose, and being able to strive for it. And I think as a consequence of that, the happiness comes almost as a byproduct.
0: I'm completely with you. And yeah, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek as well. I think if you can get sort of driven by human inspiration, he's definitely one person to follow. It wasn't one of the original questions, but I'm just keen to ask you this because it's been in the news recently. Just around you know, a couple of independent schools in the UK have decided no GCSEs. It's been a hot topic. I've had a number of guests over the last couple of seasons. We've all been talking about what's the point. Do you have a view on whether or not this is right?
1: Yeah, I think qualifications remain important. They do provide a valuable metric in terms of enabling employers and others to assess where a pupil is at a particular point in time. That's not to say that the current model of assessment is perfect. It clearly isn't one of the challenges in education is that the world moves on so quickly. Education and maybe not education in general, but assessment specifically, can often be very slow in keeping up. Having assessments at 16 and 18 has a purpose and has a value. That's certainly not a direction of travel that However, Cathedral School is going to be going down anytime soon. You're not going to see us on the front page of the Times having ditched qualifications. It is to say there's a place for looking at how qualifications can be improved. And I think in particular, one of the challenges that's a problem with qualifications is that it's very subject specific. And yet in the world in which the pupils will go in to enter, they're not just going to be looking at history or maths or geography or physics. Because if you look at so many of the problems that they'll be dealing with in business or in society, they're very multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary. And that's one of the challenges where there's a little bit of a delta between the reality of life and the structures of The assessment framework.
0: Yeah. And there's some really great work being done in America in this regard. And they talk about real world learning experiences. You know, a number of schools, you know, spend a lot of time putting their kids out there solving real world problems. And it becomes part of their terminal, their yearly modules and assessment that they do. You know, one school goes out for seven weeks every single year. The students go out for seven weeks and they just get work experience. They also work on real world problems that, You know, maybe aligned to the global kind of sustainability goals. And then they go locally and go, okay, well, what could we be doing? And as you said, it's so multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary. They learn everything. They don't know they're learning about science, but they learn all these things. Do you think there's a place for that kind of length of real world project experience in the UK? Is that achievable?
1: I think it is. I think certainly it's good to be ambitious and to be aspirational. And I think obviously what would need to happen as a consequence would be that the size of the specifications would need to be reduced somewhat. Clearly one of the challenges and maybe criticisms of traditional assessments is that a knowledge-based the nature of society as such is that we have the world's body of knowledge on our smartphones in our pockets. The rote memorization of things is perhaps a less valid thing to have than maybe previously that it was. I think if there were structural changes to enable those opportunities for project-based work pushing the pupils out into the kind of the real world and have those experiences. For me, that'd only be a positive thing.
0: You're two years in and you seem to have achieved a huge amount just in those short two years. I want you to tell us what the vision is for 2030. What are your plans?
1: Yeah, so we've certainly been busy over the last 24 months. There's obviously, you know, it's important to bed things in as well. We're not in a kind of you know phase of constant revolution and making sure that there's that stability and that bedding in is really important that constant refining of processes to make sure they're really good. That said, there's still a lot of things on the to-do list, as you can imagine. One of the big pieces that the governor set was what we call Vision 2030. That was written a few years ago. When I was appointed, there was nine years between me starting in 2030. So you've broken that down into three-year plans and then annual strategic objectives and so forth. Some of the key headlines in that is really about trying to be a beacon of excellence in terms of our teaching and learning, and making sure that our pedagogy and our curriculum is as innovative and as ambitious as possible, and that also we can support the wider educational ecosystem and the wider community and add value to others around us by virtue of the work that we're doing. We're also doing a lot of work around character education and making sure that our pupils are as kind of virtuous as they can be. And this relates back to thinking about purpose and mission and values, and that society is better as a consequence of Hereford Cathedral School being in it and Hereford Cathedral School pupils going out into the world. And maybe that's not specific policies, but that's the overarching goals which we're trying to achieve in terms of our aspirations.
0: Yeah, that no, is fantastic. And I mean, no doubt that you'll get there. And I'm sure there'll be some changes along the way because, you know, seven years is a long way to go in today's technologically changing environment. I want you to look into your crystal ball now. And I've asked all my guests, if you were to look into that crystal ball and predict what the future of education would look like in 2050, what would be different? What would be the
1: same? I think one of the key things is that schools and education more generally is going to need to be very adaptable and agile. So it was Alvin Toffler, the futurologist and American writer who said in 1970, The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And so I think that's what education is going to need to be able to enable pupils to do, to be able to pivot, to be able to adapt, to be agile. Technology is accelerating at an exceptional and exponential pace. The role that that plays is clearly going to shape and impact the nature of assessment, which obviously we've been talking about recently. And I think assessment will take a different format. It will be less a test of knowledge and more a test of what skills and aptitudes and benefits a pupil can bring which technology can't, as it were. I think, again, there'll be a much greater focus on interdisciplinarity. So if we we think about some of the challenges that exist, whether that's climate change, whether that's plastic waste pollution, international debt, whatever it might be, being able to find ways of harnessing different approaches, which draw upon a range of traditional disciplines and new disciplines, rather than just studying in in academic silos. I think that'll be some of the key threads. Always very hard to predict the future, and people who do so are typically wrong, but who knows?
0: You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.